So today we're going to begin a new series called The Three Thieves of Thanksgiving. And we're going to start out in John chapter 21. If you want to turn near in your Bibles or flip over your bulletin and you'll be able to read along with us when we get to that point of reading the scriptures. Before we do that, I just want to tell you a story about the day before Thanksgiving. There was an elderly man in Phoenix that called his son in New York and said to him, Son, I hate to ruin your day and I know this is going to ruin Thanksgiving and Christmas and the rest of the holidays, but I have some bad news to tell you. Your mom and I are getting a divorce. After 45 years of misery, I have to get rid of this woman. I just, we're getting a divorce. We've made our decisions. We're going our separate ways and we're just sick of each other. And I can only do this once, so I would appreciate you calling your sister in Chicago and telling her also. So the guy just, he's in a, the, the son's in a panic, and, and he picks up the phone in New York to call his sister in Chicago, and his older sister even. And, and he's telling her, he goes, I don't know what's going on out there in, in Phoenix, because mom and dad are getting a divorce, and, and, and dad just sounded like he was totally crushed, and I don't know what's going on. And the older sister, the older sister said, wait a minute, like most older sisters, he goes, wait a minute, I'm going to take care of this. They are not getting a divorce. That is crazy. She goes, I'm going to take care of it. And she dials her father in Phoenix and says, dad, you're not going to do a single thing until I get there. I, the, you're going to put this talk of divorce away. You're going to forget it. You're not going to do a single thing. Uh, uh, my brother and I are going to get on airplanes right now and come out there and talk to you guys. You're not getting a divorce. Do you hear me? You are not getting a divorce. We'll be there um, tonight and we're going to all sit down and have a family discussion. And the father said, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll do as you say. And he hangs up the phone. Husband turned to his wife and said, honey, we just got our Thanksgiving wish. Both the kids are coming and they're paying for their own airfare. <laughs> and that's what Thanksgiving is, though. Thanksgiving holiday brings to mind family. Some of my personally most cherished memories are being in my grandparents' home during this time of the year. Spending time in the woods with my grandfather and my uncle and followed by coming home to the dining room table that was just full of a huge supper my grandmother had made for us. And the idea of Thanksgiving is not just a holiday that's wrapped around the time that happens to coincide with Wisconsin's deer hunting season. Thanksgiving is a spiritual term. It is defined as the attribute and the ability to give thanks to God. It is an essential spiritual attribute that is missing for most people today. And we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at the three thieves of Thanksgiving in our lives. And today we begin by looking at the first thief, which is comparison. So we're going to be in John chapter 21, starting in verse 18 today. Before we get there, we have to see the context of what we are about to read. Before all this happened... Jesus is spending some quality time with his disciples here in John 21. But before this happened, there was this issue with Peter. You remember in the, uh, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus predicts that Peter is going to betray him three times. And that's exactly what happens. As, as Peter is watching Jesus be scourged, as Peter is watching Jesus get beat and spat upon and kicked and punched and all the things that Jesus went through, he ended up denying Jesus three times, even with profanity. He was bleepity, bleep, bleep, I do not know this man. 
And it said that the rooster crowed and he re remembered what Jesus said that you will deny me three times before that rooster crow crows. And Peter was crushed because he denied Jesus right to his faith. In Luke's gospel, it said that Jesus looked right at him when he did it. Imagine how Peter had to have felt. The big leader of the disciples was just crushed in his spirit. So now, after his resurrection, Jesus is having his first intimate time with his disciples. He's been seen by hundreds of people. He's, he's met them in a room, but now he is sitting around a campfire and spending some time with them. And he uses this time to restore Peter. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? He allows Peter to be restored by saying that he loved Jesus three times to mask the rejection and cancel it out in Peter's mind, the three denials that he had done. But now Jesus also tells Peter his future. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 21. John 21, 18, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he did this to show them, to sh he said, this he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, and the one who had leaned back against him during supper, and he said, Lord, is this the one is, or who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, talking about the Apostle John, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man over here? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that we just take this story that we find in Scripture of this event that happened right before your ascension into heaven. And we can understand the dangers of looking toward others in comparison to what you have called us to on this earth. Because ultimately it doesn't matter what our neighbor does, it matters what we do. And it matters how we serve you. So help us see the dangers of comparing ourselves with others this morning as we study your word and expound upon it. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Now we're going to talk this morning over the next three weeks about the three thieves of Thanksgiving. And I'm not just talking about somebody ugly like the person up here on, or the people up here on the screen breaking into your house and stealing your turkey or running off with the, the cranberry sauce, but some of the devices that Satan uses to bring your focus down from looking at Jesus, taking it off of God and putting them on the things of this world and the problems of this life. And this morning we're going to talk, focus on the first of the three thieves of Thanksgiving, and that is comparison. And when I say comparison, I'm speaking to looking to what you don't have. You're looking for at something else that you may not have, or someone else that you may not have, or some situation that is not favorable to you that you want to have in your life. It's focusing on the lack of something instead of being thankful for what is there, uh, there for you and given to you by God. Or to put it another way, it's longing for another's blessing 
while ignoring the blessing that God has already given you. And some of the causes of comparison we see back in the biblical account of what we just read. Let's look at, at Peter and who he was. The first cause of comparison is inferiority. Now, let, now bear with me here, because I'm going to use a, a word that is, is somewhat loaded in our minds and, and, and within our culture today. But Peter was, in essence, kind of a bully. And I use that term not so much describing the guy or girl in school that, that pushed you around or made fun of you or, or walked up behind you in gym class and gave you a wedgie. I'm not talking about that kind of a, of a bully. I'm talking about the big guy that we know. All of us know some big hulking guy that is always like really domineering, really this, I am the man and, and I'm loud, I'm brash and, and everybody knows I'm the tough guy. I'm, that, that, that's kind of the person I'm talking about here. And Peter is that kind of man. And as I was researching for this message this week, I found sev several different definitions for his given name, Simon. That was his name before Jesus changed it to Peter. And Simon, depending upon the language used, has several different meanings. One of the Greek meanings of Simon is snub-nosed. And the, the idea there, it means stubborn. That you're just snub-nosed. That you're, you're, gonna, you're, you're just kind of one of those guys that has this expression on his face all the time. And you're just going to be stubborn about everything. One of the Greek meanings of Simon is, is snub-nosed, but in Aramaic, or the, the name Simon or Cephas could also mean cackling hyena. So Simon could mean the stubborn cackling hyena, one who speaks rashly and without knowledge. And that describes Peter perfectly. And the culture that they existed in, people were named for very specific reasons, and these meanings could have shaped who he was as a person. And before Jesus called him to be a disciple, he was just that kind of stubborn, brash, cackling hyena. He was a rough, cussing fisherman, working one of the toughest jobs that existed during his time. And once he became a disciple... He automatically, because of who he was, became one of the leaders among the other 11 disciples. Remember back when Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was? Remember that story in the Bible? They, some people say, well, you're John, and some people say you're a prophet, and some people say this, and some people say that. And Peter comes up with the right answer. He said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus is so thrilled that somebody finally figured out who he was that he proclaims because of Peter's confession of faith that he changes his name from snub-nosed, stubborn, cackling hyena to Rocky. And on that statement of faith and that heart, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now imagine Peter being who he is, getting that kind of compliment in front of the whole rest of his friends, imagine his hat size probably increased about 10 times at that point. His head went, right? I mean, now he's the man. I'm the prophet, right? I got it right. Y'all, they have 10 wrong answers. Jesus said, I got it right. I mean, look at this. I got it right first try. James and John have to have their mom try to jockey them into positions in Jesus' kingdom. And he tells me now that I'm going to be the rock that his church is built on. I'm blessed. I'm the man. 
A few hours later, Jesus speaks about his dying for everyone's sins. Peter decides that him being rocky needs to sit Jesus down for a talk. Pulls him aside and says, Jesus, you know, all this talk about dying, it's not the way to build your kingdom. I know that, that you know, you're the son of God, but hey, I'm rocky. You said it yourself. And let me tell you something, sir, that's not the way you build a church. Jesus turns to him and calls him Satan and says, get away from me. Imagine that hat size got a little smaller at that point, like popping the balloon, right? This is, who, this is who the Apostle Peter is. Peter was a man who needed to be recognized. And those who suffer from this type of need are always stuck with this sense of inferiority because they place their self-worth about how other people feel about them. So they compare themselves to others. And all of us have this at some level. Don't let people fool you. The people who said that, that I don't care what other people think of me, they're the ones that most are deeply affected by this problem. I used to be deeply infected by this when I was younger. And although it's much less than it used to be, it's still something I struggle with today. Early in my ministry at our first church, uh, most of you know it was called Lakeshore, I was the interim pastor and I taught on Wednesdays and preached some Sundays. And Lakeshore was a revival church where everything was focused on moves of the Holy Spirit. And the more exciting a preacher was, the more full of the Holy Spirit they had to be and the more anointed they appeared. And I had been taking the congregation through 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and showing them how important and how central love is to the Christian. And it was a very strong, very biblical, very convicting set of lessons. But it wasn't something where somebody was up here dancing on stage and yelling and screaming, but it was something that was very biblical and very almost heartrending for a lot of people. And the elder board had scheduled several meetings with an evangelist who was moderately famous within the Assemblies of God at that time. And he came and blew everybody away. I was blown away with the breath of his teaching and very energetic delivery. And I really was blessed. But during his last service with us on a Tuesday night, I'm thinking, gosh, tomorrow's Wednesday night and I have to return to my lesson. And I'm nowhere near the level this guy is. I mean, people are going to be falling asleep when I start trying to teach. And, and I was thinking about that as he's teaching, and I'm like, gosh, I'm nowhere near this guy. And, you know, these guys are stuck with me. And, and man, I don't, I don't even know how they can, you know, stand to listen to me because I just stink at this and, and all these kind of things. And as he was getting ready to leave and drive to the airport, I was walking him to the door, and I told him how really blessed I was by his ministry. And I said, by the way, and I said it jokingly, but I probably meant it in the back of my head. I said, thanks for making my job so much harder because now I got to go and preach tomorrow. And, I, and after you blew everybody away, they got to be stuck with me. And he stopped. He stopped me at the door and took me over one of the pews that, that were sitting by the door, sat me down, and he said, you know what, Johnny? He's from Arkansas. He said, you know what, Johnny? You need to fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. You can't compare yourself with me. He said, I, you haven't lived my life. You haven't had my experiences. You haven't experienced my failures. He goes, I tried pastoring three times, and let me tell you, I blew up all three churches. He goes, the only thing that got me out of pastoring was a secret vote, and I was set free. They threw me right out of those churches. He goes, I'm so bad about it. And he goes, I just had to accept the fact. God has called me to live a life of faith and be an itinerant revival preacher. That's what he has called me to do. He goes, that pastor and stuff, that ain't for me. I can't, I, I just can't do it. 
He said, grab on to what God has told you to do. Trust what he has told you to do. And don't deviate one degree from the direction that he is leading you. And you are going to live in his blessing. And that's excellent advice for all of us. You say, well, that's one pastor talking to another. But that's excellent advice for all of us. Not just for those in ministry, but for everyone in life. You have to remember wherever your life has taken you, remember this, that God has used whatever you have gone through in your life to use you for such a time as this, for such a place as where you exist right now and right here. You and I, were all called to do something for the kingdom. Some of you may have lost vision of what God has for you, but be encouraged in this. He's not forgotten you. You just must, you might still be in that time of preparation and training. And even if you think you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death this morning, like there, there is no possible way I'm in the desert of God's forgetfulness, that he has totally forgotten me, he's totally abandoned me, he has nothing for me in life anymore, all the light's gone, there are some promises in God's word I want you to hold on to. Romans 8.28, one of the best promises in the Bible for people who are walking through this valley right now, says that we know that in all things, say all things. All things. Which things? All things. What? All things. All things. In all things, God works for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you are saved, if you are a Christian here, you have been called according to the purpose of God. And you're going to get to where God is leading you. Just don't short circuit, short circuit the process. And the quickest way to kill that progress is trying to compare yourself with somebody else. Peter hears that he is going to die like Jesus did. Remember, Peter witnessed how Jesus died. He saw the whipping. He saw the flogging. He saw the beatings. He saw them ripping his beard off. He saw the crucifixion. All this was on his mind when he immediately pointed at John the Beloved and asked, well, what about him? And that leads us to the consequences of comparison. If you choose to compare yourself with others, you're going to develop these three consequences in your spirit. Number one is a lack of trust. People who compare their lives with other people are often people who desire the applause of others. And this comes from having very deep trust issues. And it affects the way that they see God. And I'll be honest with you, I'm speaking from very deep experience here. So please understand, if this is you, I'm right there with you. Jesus didn't completely trust Jesus because Peter wanted and needed that kind of recognition. And that need exists within all of us to a certain point. And all it is is a desire to receive the worship that is due only to God. The desire for fame, whether it's an American idol or, or somebody trying to make it big in Hollywood or, or anything like that. Fame is just another word for recognition. And it's the most poisonous thing the human soul can pursue in their life. The more, it's more addictive than any other drug and it will cause you to turn your back on God faster than any other sin human can be enslaved by. And it all starts with a lack of trust. 
a lack of trust in God's timing, a lack of trust in God's provision, a lack of trust in God's plan, and a lack of trust in God's sovereignty over your life. When you start comparing your life, your family, your possessions, your job, your church, your pastor, your spouse, your kids, your car, or whatever you treasure most in life to what somebody else has, you start down this road. And that leads us to the second consequence of comparing ourselves with others. And that's a lack of understanding of oneself and the gifts that God has given you. I'm going to start um, by illustrating this by showing a brief video of Pastor Matt Chandler of the Village Church of Dallas. He's describing his friend and megachurch pastor and then here's Mark the big Driscoll's one that, preaching that we talked about. Go ahead. Okay. Earlier, fulfill your ministry. Early on in the process, what most guys do is, is they identify somebody whose model is working. So, so they'll go, okay, Driscoll. But can we... Like, Driscoll's a good friend of mine. Can we admit that he's just got a unique gift? He just, it's really, really unique. And I don't know anybody else I've ever been able to see pull it off. Like, I can't get up in front of the people at the village and go, uh, my sermon today is entitled, I think you're stupid. I've got 13 points. <laughs> and, and then he goes through it. Look, one is just simple. You're, it's, you're just stupid. There's nothing behind it. Right? But okay, let's be honest. This is a Holy Spirit thing. What happens when he does it? Like people get saved. It's like point one, you're stupid. And they're like, oh God, I'm stupid. <laughs> All right, so now when you listen to a bunch of Driscoll and then come and get in your pulpits and go, let me tell you people why you're stupid. <laughs> and then, okay, listen, fulfill your ministry. That's just a humorous way of uh, looking at what we're talking about this morning. But he's right. Because... It's a pretty accurate way of describing, especially Mark Driscoll in his early days, the way he would preach. And he was very successful. He grew his church from 10 in his living room to several thousand in Seattle. Seattle is probably the least church and least Christian city in America, beating even San Francisco. One of the hardest places that you could go and try to start a church. And he did it. He raised up Pastor Mark with a very unique gift that was only going to work in that time and place right there. And just as Pastor Matt said, if I, would, if I compare myself to Pastor Mark and I try to imitate him here in Whitehall and I stood up here and said, let me tell you people why you're stupid. You'd run me out, the church would be closed in a month and I'd be ran out of town with pitchforks and torches, right? It's not going to work. The takeaway for us, you say, well, that has to do with pastors. No, this has to do with everybody. Fulfill your ministry. You have gifts that God has given you from eternity past. And he's given you the, these gifts for this time, this place, this situation, and for this outpost that we call Cooley Community Church in the kingdom of God in Trempealeau County. 
Because when you get to comparing yourself with others, well, I can't do it because that person's better at it. I can't do it because because that that person's much more gifted than I am. You call into question God's sovereignty. You call into question God's goodness. And you call into question God's plan. You don't think God can use you when he said he can make even the rocks cry out if people didn't worship him? God can use you right where you are in some way much further and above anything that you could ever dream. That leads us to the third consequence of comparing. Comparison is the thief of joy. You can't learn to be satisfied with what you have. You never will be find satisfaction with what you can get. Let me give you an example. Go back to when you were like under 12 years old. And if you can't remember back that far, you have kids and grandkids. Think about them. For months before Christmas, they have been begging you for that toy. That toy, the big toy. No matter what it was, it's the one that everybody else is getting for Christmas this year. And I know if I get this toy, it's just going to be everything. It's just, it's just going to make me so happy and I'll be fulfilled and I'm going to just be able to exist in this oh, kind of joy um, atmosphere. And every time you bring them to the store, every time you walk into a Walmart, a Target, a Shopko, Kmart, they pull you over to the toy section so they can stare at their toy. And Christmas comes and they open their presents. Behold, that gift is finally theirs. They hug it, they play with it, they bring it, even bring it in the car with them when they're going places. They leave it in the car so when, when you pick them up from school, the first thing they see is their toy. Now fast forward a month. Where is that toy? Probably under their bed. Where all the mismatched socks from the dryer are. And now they're begging for the next cool toy and they're miserable until they get it. Now, do you think that's just a condition that children have? No, with adults it's just more expensive. Expensive in cost, and that cost isn't just financial. Maybe there's a woman out there that is convinced that the married guy that she knows will bring her joy, so she cheats on her husband and he cheats on his wife because they are convinced that they'll make each other complete. Or maybe there's a man out there who works 90 hours a week and has no time for family because he's pursuing that promotion, because he knows that once he gets it, it'll make him happy and complete to get that promotion. Maybe there's a couple that is wealthy, and they refuse to give to others in need, or give to charity, or, or even church, because they need that new car, or they need that better retirement, or they need that bigger house in order to make them feel fulfilled. And I call this type of thinking expensive, because you never find out the cost until it's too late. And that cost can be a broken marriage. And children that distrust the authority of God and are cynical toward marriage. Or families that learn that they are second place to the success of your career. Or maybe pursuing material gain will always lead, want you to want more. And you're never going to find that gold at the end of the rainbow because you're still going to run after more and more and more and more. A hunger that can never be satisfied. And it all started with a comparison of some type. That I need this, even though God didn't prescribe it for me. 
But those are the problems of comparison. Let's look at the solution. Number one cure for comparison is to magnify God in our lives. Many of us will hit the woods with a rifle this year. On top of that rifle is a scope. What's the job of a scope? Make things far away look bigger, right? Magnifying God does that same thing. It speaks of focusing on Him and making Him bigger than everything else you see in your life. And it's a critically important point that we need to understand. Because too many people are focused on the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is just a fleshly and earthly condition caused by circumstances in your life that you might feel, feel that are favorable right now. And the problem with pursuing happiness is that we fail to realize we're spiritual beings first. These bodies are just vehicles that house the spirit. And people look at me and they think my spirit's huge. But people, these are just vehicles to house a spirit. What people are really craving is not happiness, but the spiritual gift of joy. Joy is a spiritual condition that can only be found in God. All these things in life that we pursue to find joy can't ever work because they're finite. Joy is a spiritual condition that is infinite, and the only thing that can fulfill an infinite need is an infinite God. And that's why we need to magnify God in our lives, to make Him the largest thing we focus on to find true joy, true peace, true fulfillment, and the true satisfaction that only He can give us. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things can be given to you as well. Make God the biggest thing in your life and he'll blow you away with how much of these other things he is able to entrust you with now because he knows that he is the primary focus and that all these other things won't be things that will ensnare you and drag you away from him. The second way is to develop gratitude. In other words, be thankful. I have some homework for you. Grab a pen, grab your bulletin, and write and write just write this down of something you can do this week. I want you to go home today and I want you to start a list of everything you have to be thankful for in this life. And I'll give you a hint. Number one should be Jesus and what he's done for us. If you have nothing else you can think of that I'm thankful for, you say, Pastor, I live in a cardboard box. What, I, what can I be thankful for? Jesus died for you. Be thankful for that. But make this list. Every time you see it, just stop and thank God for something on that list. And you'll be surprised how your attitude changes and how your heart and mind will refocus on what is correct and right and true and how much more and more you'll fall in love with Jesus. Do that for me and we'll see in a few weeks how you're doing. And finally, I just want to point, at, point out that we picked on Peter a lot in this message. But I want to tell you the Paul Harvey version, the end of the story. Peter learned to put aside the sin of comparison. And we see that in these words that he wrote at the end of his life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he said, I think it right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. In verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, 
as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter knew he was going to die. Peter knew he was going to Rome to be crucified. And he was making preparations to make sure the church would be okay without him there. And there's no fear of death in these words. There's no fear of man's opinion. Peter had gotten to the point where he magnified God to such a degree and developed that attitude of gratitude to such a point in his life that he could be at peace knowing Jesus' words were about to come true very soon when Jesus said, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. It is said that Peter was crucified just like his Lord, just like Jesus, with one exception. Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't, want to be, he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified like his master. Maybe there is a comparison in your life right now that you need to crucify this morning.